And so he was fun just in, in everyday conversation. He was incredibly knowledgeable, but it never felt didactic. It felt like doors just opening up in the world to walk through and, and explore with you. So yes, I feel grateful every day to have been raised, not just by him, by my mother as well, to grow up in a family that made the world seem boundlessly interesting and, and like a place we all venture into and explore. That was New Yorker staff writer and Pulitzer Prize winner Catherine Schultz speaking about her late father, Isaac Schultz, who died soon after Schultz met her future partner. In her new memoir, Lost and Found, Schultz weaves these two experiences together, detailing the ways in which love and loss are invariably intertwined. On this episode, Schultz joins Commonweal's literary editor, Anthony Domestico, to talk about it. It's coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. Tony Domestico, good to have you here on the Commonweal Podcast. Good to be here, Dominic. So let's uh, hear a little bit about what you and Catherine Schultz talked about. Sure. So Catherine Schultz, as you know, has just published a memoir in part about the loss of her father and in part about the discovery of her love for her now partner, the New Yorker writer Casey Sepp. And so we talked a lot about the relationship between love and loss, how discovery is one way of connecting those two seemingly quite disparate experiences. Schultz is you know, most famous as a staff writer at The New Yorker, probably most famous for her 2015 piece on the big earthquake that's coming to the Pacific Northwest. And she's really interested in, in science and issues of scale. So we talked a lot about how losing someone you love changes how you think about your place in the vastness of existence and how finding and, and, and falling in love changes that experience as well. Hmm. Okay. Well, this sounds like a good conversation. Why don't we take a listen? Thanks, Tony. Great. Thanks, Dominic. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us today on the Commonwealth Podcast. Thanks for having me on. And so the title of your book, Lost and Found, telegraphs its two major subjects, the grief-filled shock of losing someone, in this case, your father, and the love-filled shock of finding someone, in this case, your wife, the writer, Casey Sepp. Could you talk us through how you came to write on it and pair these two experiences, losing someone you love and finding someone you love? Sure. Although I should preface it by saying that any effort to talk it through will make it sound far more premeditated than it actually was. In a very wonderful way, this book came to be full cloth. What happened is I wrote, uh, after my father died, I wrote an essay for The New Yorker that was frankly a kind of, a pretty strange kind of elegy for him. It was about my grief over losing him, but it was also about this strange category of loss in general and all the other things we lose, you know, keys, wallets, cell phones, elections, you name it. And after that piece came out, uh, a couple of people approached me and asked me if I was interested in turning it into a book. And the truth is I wasn't, um, not because there wasn't more to say about grief. There's obviously always more to say about grief and certainly not because I don't love thinking and writing about my father, which I do, but it just did not, it, it didn't command my attention in the way that a book project really needs to, uh, since, it, since it's going to eat a lot of your life. And then at, at one point, my partner and I were talking over this problem of, well, would I want to turn it into something else? And I basically said what I just said to you, to her. And she said, well, what if you also contemplated this kind of parallel category of discovery? 
And as soon as she said that, I, I had the kind of halfway aha moment, which is, oh, right. Well, by far the most wonderful thing I've ever found is, is you, right? My partner. <laughs> so I, I did recognize very quickly that there was this kind of mirror image story to be told, uh, that I could embed my love story in an exploration of the category of finding things more generally in the same way that I'd embedded this account of grief in, in this category of loss. You, you said correctly that the title of the book just perfectly reveals what I'm up to inside it. And the title is Lost and Found, and it's written in three parts. And the first part is lost and the second part is found. But the third part is and, that, that little word in between. And what happened when my partner and I were talking about this kind of diptych of stories is she happened to use the phrase lost and found, this totally everyday expression. And in that strange way that the mind sometimes kind of operates, I, I really just landed on the and. It, it, it actually rung out for me because I did have the experience of meeting her and losing my father in very quick succession. So I'd been thinking a lot about how we don't get to experience our grief and our love in these like nice separate little baskets that it all pours into the same space inside us. So it was really hearing that, that just really instantly I realized, oh, it's it's not a diptych, uh, it's a triptych. Yeah. And the third part explores this kind of emotional conjunction we all live with. And right away I realized, oh yeah, that that actually is a book I want to write. You write really beautifully about your father, about his loss, but also about his person, his omnivorous intellectual interests, what he was like to talk with. And so I was wondering if you could share with our listeners, what was he like? What was he like to have a conversation with? What was he like to, to live with in love? So my father had a really interesting uh, and actually really difficult early life. He was born in Tel Aviv to a mother who was one of only two members of her very large family to survive the Holocaust. She, because she was living in Palestine, one other because they were the only survivor of Auschwitz. And my dad spent his early life being kicked around the globe by the combined forces of, of poverty and geopolitical violence and finally settled in Detroit. And nothing in those early years would have indicated that he would emerge as this unbelievably joyful, ebullient person. But he really did. He had an incredible just love of life and, and zeal for other human beings and, and for the world around him and a kind of insatiable curiosity, which was a great, a great thing to grow up with, right? Partly because he always invited us into it. And if you sat down to talk to my dad right now, first of all, if he were on this podcast, instead of me, he'd have already packed in six times the amount of words I have. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a slow talker, but my dad really, he just, his mind went in a thousand astute directions all at once, and he would convey them all to you. And he was really fun to listen to. I write about this some in the book, but my dad spoke seven languages because of this kind of nomadic childhood. And he actually learned English last. He was incredibly fluent in it, but it was a little bit like watching one of these Olympic ice skaters or something. There was always this sense of, is he going to stick the landing? <laughs> because because 50 things would happen in the sentence. And then amazingly, he'd get to the end and it would all come together spectacularly. And and so he was fun just in, in everyday conversation. Like he really, he was incredibly knowledgeable, but it never felt didactic. It felt like doors just opening up in the world to walk through and, and explore with you. So yes, I feel grateful every day to have been raised, not just by him, by my mother as well, to grow up in a family that made the world seem boundlessly interesting and, and like a place we all venture into and explore. Yeah. In one of the kind of constitutive forces of your love, it seems, was through a shared love of language, right? Through a shared love of reading, through a shared love of words. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about 
the strange word circumjoviating. It's one of my favorite moments in the book. And I feel like it, it crystallizes the kind of relationship you had with your father. Oh, gosh, yes. I'd be happy to tell this story. Many years ago, although I was fully into my adulthood, for the life of me, I cannot remember what I was reading. And I wish I could, you know, some kind of, I like science a lot. A lot of what I write about outside of this book is scientific in one way or another. And I'm sure I was reading some arcane journal article and mm-hmm. who knows what astrophysics today. But anyway, I came across this word that I'd never heard before. So I had to look it up and the word was circumjoviating, which as it turns out, has this very specific meaning. It means in orbit around Jupiter. And I thought, wow, that's just wonderful. I mean, who's ever heard of such a thing? And as it happens, I was having dinner with my father that night. He was um, just in town for work. And we went out to dinner. And pretty much the minute I sat down, because this is how our relationship worked, I said, Dad, out of curiosity, what do you think circumjoviating means? And my dad thought for like 15 seconds. And What was so remarkable, he didn't know what it meant. Nobody's ever heard of this word, right? (laughs) Outside of apparently Jupiter scholars. (laughs) So he thinks about this for just a a moment or two. And he says to me, avoiding God. And I just, it was just, you couldn't, if, if you had given me 10 years to come up with a gorgeous, logical, alternative definition of this word, I, I would never have landed on that. But of course he heard the circum, right? The sense of revolving around something at a distance. And he heard Jove, you know, inside of Jupiter, he heard this idea of God. And I just love it. And I do still use that word in the alternate definition today, because in addition to being a a kind of beautiful insight about what that word could mean, I felt like it actually gave me language for something we all need, which is what it is we're doing sometimes when we are actually in some sense avoiding God avoiding our moral responsibilities or avoiding some direct look into the existential realities of life. Yes, it's one of the many wonderful linguistic gifts my dad gave me, circumjoviating. Yeah. And and you end that anecdote in the book by talking about how it was a gift of ethics inside a gift of language. And Really, the whole book seems to me wrestling with the kind of ethical implications of how we use language and in particular, how we write ethically and honestly about things like loss. You actually open the book by talking about your dissatisfaction with various euphemisms for grief, for loss. And I was wondering, I mean, obviously this is a, a big question, but what were some of the challenges you encountered in trying to be as precise and honest in your language about loss and about grief? Well, first of all, I just want to thank you for connecting those two ideas. It's a really beautiful question and a beautiful observation about the book that, yes, this sense that we are ethically bound, even in in how we speak and write about the world, um, does feel very present to me. It's challenging, right? And I I think a lot about ethics in writing, whether I'm writing about violence or or emotional reality or, or really almost anything, political realities. And with grief, I think that I ultimately felt that I one obligation I had was to cleave incredibly close to my own experience, which is interesting because since you read the book, that actually it pans out very far from my own experience. This mm-hmm is a memoir only in a fairly generous sense of the word. I do tell my own love story. I do tell the story of losing my father, but in service of these bigger ideas about loss and discovery. So in many ways, the book doesn't stay at all close to me. But when it came to thinking through 
the actual emotional experience of loss. I was really mindful of many things. First of all, and, and perhaps most pressingly, I was mindful that my father's death, as I state very plainly in the pages of the book, was not a tragedy. And it was heartbreaking unto me and my family because he was just a wonderful human. But he died, I, I think, in hope peacefully at 74, surrounded by people he loved and, and following a, a truly rich and incredible life. And I just was aware from the very beginning of the risks of I don't want to say overstating my grief because my grief was what it was, you know, but of, of suggesting that it was a kind of loss that it isn't, which of course was really palpable to me because I also tell, admittedly in, in somewhat brief form, I tell the story of all the family that he lost in the Holocaust. Right. You know, I, I tell other tragic stories utterly unrelated to mine. And here we are all living in a pandemic. I was incredibly mindful of the actually tragic forms that loss takes all around us. And it did feel ethically incumbent upon me to make sure that the loss I was describing and the, the, the emotions I was describing were always incredibly specific to me and to my experience. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's um, at odds with other people identifying with them. And I certainly have heard otherwise from readers. I think that the specific can be really helpful. It's actually beautiful to me um, to hear from readers who read my story about losing my elderly father and, and write to me about how moved they were, made them think about their brother's death from cancer when they were 20, you know, or they read my lesbian love story and they write to me about their, a man writes to me about his wife of 50 years and, and how he's still in love with her and dances in the kitchen every day. So I, I do think specificity invites us actually to reach beyond to the general in various ways, but I certainly felt not just a narrative, but an ethical obligation to be very clear about what my story is and what it isn't. Mm. Yeah. In one of the ways in which you pivot from the very specific and individual story of grief that you're thinking of to kind of larger philosophical considerations is precisely through that term that you used before, the link between the losing and the finding, which is discovery. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how loss can be its own form of discovery. In particular, you say, in the end, it may be that certain losses are so shocking, not because they defy reality, but because they reveal it. And I'm wondering what discoveries did loss enable for you? And in particular, I'm interested in the notion of discovery of scale. You talk a lot about scale in both the love section and the loss section. Mm. I do think that loss entails a lot of discovery. As really anyone knows who's ever grieved, right? Grief reveals unto you your own emotional resources. It reveals to you many interesting things about your community, right? And not just who rallies and is able to support and sustain you, but also other people's stories. I, I think people open up about grief sometimes in the face of someone else's grief. And you do encounter all kinds of new things along the way, including your own experience. I write a little bit about the very strange way that much of the experience of grief becomes obvious to us after the fact. And so there's a kind of discovery and learning involved in that too. I said earlier, my father's death wasn't a tragedy. And that's actually part of what made my own emotions really interesting to me because I felt, well, here I am experiencing death in some ways in its most gentle form, right? It could have been a little more gentle. I wish my dad had died at 99, not 74. But in the scheme of things, a, a very gentle death. And I had experienced notably non-gentle deaths prior to that. So part of what was really striking to me was, you know, this is the good version. And it's still, frankly, quite horrible. <laughs> you know, I was, I was incredibly sad about the loss of my dad and, and a little undone in all kinds of ways. And I think what it 
forced me to confront was, to your scale point, was these kinds of sweeping existential questions. This is, at its absolute best, the nature of existence, right? Someone just blinks out of reality. They become utterly inaccessible to us and, and their life as we know it. And in my cosmology, their life in general is just absolutely over. And there's something very awful in, in both the conventional and in the original sense of the word of confronting that. I don't think there's a way to grieve a death like that that does not force you to really think about, well, who are we? What are we doing here? What does it mean to be human? How do we go on in the face of this kind of daunting superstructure. You, mm. you do feel a little bit like the ant someone actually stepped on or actually the ant next to the ant someone actually stepped mm -hmm. on when a death like this happens because you can't, I mean, all death, I think in various ways brings us up against these kinds of forces, a sudden death in a car accident and, and you're confronted with the problem of seeming randomness. I, I just think any kind of loss brings us face to face with the really huge questions. Why mm. does all this happen? And, and yes, I am glad the kind of sense of scale crept into your reading of it because it's a lot of what's interesting to me because it's fundamentally what's hard about loss and death. And we'll be right back with Tony Domestico's conversation with Catherine Schultz. Every year, the John Paul II Center for Interreligious Dialogue brings together a group of Russell Berry Fellows to study in Rome at the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas, known as the Angelicum, there to learn about interreligious dialogue and how to build relationships across lines of difference. Russell Berry Fellows live and study in Rome for one academic year from October to June. They take classes in ecumenism and dialogue, Judaism and Islam. They travel to Israel for 10 days to study at the Shalom Hartman Institute and visit the sacred sites in the Holy Land, and they participate in interfaith events with leading practitioners and theologians in the field of interreligious dialogue. If you're interested, you can register for an informative webinar and submit your application for the fellowship program at the Angelicum by April 25, 2022. For more information, visit iie.eu slash berry, that's spelled B-E-R-R-I-E. One of the connected tissues between the lost section and the found section is precisely that love also attunes us to, to scale and a vastness as well. And so I was wondering if you could talk a, a little bit about the discovery of, of Casey, right? What the, the beginnings of how you found one another in what, again, discovery at the level of scale or otherwise that kind of led you to. As with talking about my father, talking about Casey is always a pleasure. We met through a mutual friend who sent us an email kind of out of the blue one day saying, I think you guys would like each other. You should get coffee sometime. She was not trying to set us up and coffee seemed like a perfectly pleasant idea. But at the time I was living up in the Hudson Valley of New York and Casey was living down on the eastern shore of Maryland. And it was not particularly obvious how we would ever get coffee, nor did it seem from that perspective particularly urgent. You know, yes, one day Casey was on a road trip headed up to Vermont and it occurred to her that random friend of a friend lived at the halfway point on that voyage and maybe we should get that cup of coffee. And so we did. And from my perspective, I remember very clearly I was, I was on deadline that day. I was in fact well past my deadline. And I remember thinking, well, I have to eat lunch anyway, but like 45 minutes tops. <laughs> like I gotta get back to this piece. I gotta finish it. And so I walk into town to meet her at this little cafe and I don't know, four hours later or something, I headed home. <laughs> Uh, because it was one of those lunches. It was a lunch where time really did fall away and small talk fell away. 
you're instantly in a universe of real depth and incredible, like my father, incredible panoptic curiosity and this sort of towering intellect. And, and yes, I just, it was dazzling from moment one. Look, there's obviously more improbable meetings that, that happen in this world. And yet, yes, I do, I do feel that incredible finds like incredible losses, they always make us amazed that, that such a thing could ever happen. I do feel some amazement that someone who, you know, there was one point of contact. Now, of course, there's a zillion. But at the time, there was one point of contact between our two worlds. This friend I didn't know very well and she didn't know very well. And and we did live a couple hundred miles from each other and we're separated temporarily as well. I'm older than she is. And it felt quite shocking that we would ever meet. And I think that's a really common feeling, actually, when you fall in love. I think people um, really touchingly find it all amazing, like down to like, it's incredible you exist. How could someone write yeah. you exist? And, and that feeling of amazement is to me the sort of flip side of, of what we feel when we lose someone, which is the vast universe takes away and, and the vast universe giveth. And, and, and it's yeah. a really beautiful feeling. Yeah. And in, in, in both experiences, it, it seems we're struck by the improbability of it, right? The improbability that we could lose someone who has meant so much to us and the improbability that we could find someone who would mean so much to us. And in both cases, it seems like you're interested in how that improbability leads to a kind of perceptual shift. And we see the world differently. I, I think the power of the, the love section is precisely talking about seeing with someone, right? Seeing the world without collapsing the difference between the two of you, but seeing the world jointly facing the world together. Yeah, um, I think that's exactly right. To me, a really beautiful thing about love is that in a kind of experiential sense, it makes the world bigger, right? And you suddenly, um, you do see what someone else sees. You meet the people they meet. You get to know the place that they're from. Whole terrains, literal and otherwise, that were unfamiliar to you, open up. You read the books they love. You see the mm-hmm. movies they love. Uh, you try some new food because you always thought you hated it, but you're so in love, you try it. And lo and behold, it's delicious. Like in, in a really kind of practical way, falling in love, I think, almost always makes your world much larger. But I also, I like what you just said, because I think it also, to return us to some of the moral questions of the book, I think it makes the world morally larger in the sense that you do become morally responsible for someone else. You know, Mm -hmm. when you see what pains someone, you care about it. When you see what troubles them, you care about it. When you're exposed to the kinds of afflictions or circumstances that they or their family or people that are important to them have gone through, you you naturally, I think, extend yourself into caring about those things too, which is optimally how we all should be toward each other, right? This is actually a very old and at presently slightly unpopular argument about love, which is it's a great, it's a great force for sharpening our moral sensibilities, uh, which I actually kind of subscribe to. I, I think at its best, love does remind us of our obligations to care for one another. And in that sense, it makes the world both bigger and smaller. It it makes it bigger because it widens the compass of people we feel obligated toward and then it makes it smaller because we do bring them into our circle and and start to feel like they have an actual moral claim on us, which of course is how we should feel about everyone, but that's difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And it it does seem important to to draw a, a distinction here, which is you write about love as looking with, but not exactly looking the same as, right? It, you look at the world with the person you love. You don't look at the world necessarily as they see it. And that leads to a really important distinction between how you and Casey see the world. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your different 
faith backgrounds, because that's one of the striking differences, right, between how you see the world. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, it's uh, definitely an act of looking with, not looking as. Casey and I are very different in many respects and almost all of them fruitful and fascinating, although occasionally also challenging as, as difference almost always is. But yes, so I, both of my parents are Jewish. My father was a, a Jewish refugee to this country, as I briefly uh, said earlier. My mom grew up in a highly assimilated Jewish family in Pittsburgh and Cleveland. And I grew up within the Jewish faith. I grew up going to synagogue and learning about Judaism. But for whatever reason or combination of reasons, was just never um, never terribly persuaded by it, I guess you would say. And certainly as an adult, regard myself as fairly skeptical empiricist anyway. And, and certainly with respect to matters of faith, um, I'm very humbled by the cosmos. My general posture is I know nothing about it, but I do have the specific posture of extreme dubiousness that, that whatever's going on out there, I don't think some benevolent deity is, is watching out for the particulars of our lives. Would that it were so. Casey, by contrast, is a very devout Lutheran. Uh, she grew up in the Lutheran church and it was very clear to me and humbling to me and comic to me and generally wonderful to me that I, whatever, however robust our relationship was, it would never be as robust as her relationship with Christ, which was really fascinating as a kind of secular Jew. So we do see the world really differently and and yet not, right? Part of what's interesting to me is I actually would say that of all of the differences between us, and I describe some of them in the book, I'm shocked to be able to say, low these many years on the other side of meeting her, that the religious difference does not feel like the most profound or influential one. Part of that is because we actually do see the world in very similar terms on, on, with respect to the most of the questions that one might consider theological. We differ as to the existence of God and the role of God. The general interest in, in the origins of the universe, in meaning-making, in, in, in morality, and how we should live our lives. We don't much part ways on most okay. of that. I'm mindful she has a ground floor that I don't, and in some ways jealous of that, although it also feels unthinkable and, and sometimes still quite strange to me. There's practical differences that arise. That's everything from what we would want to happen at a memorial service to we have this beautiful baby daughter now, right? How are we going to raise her? What what are mm -hmm. what, what kinds of decision-making are we going to do around matters of faith? But interestingly, it, I say this in the book, but we really do care about the same questions. And so yeah. it does not matter as much as you might think it would that our answers sometimes diverge. Yeah. And it seems that both of you approach the world primarily from a position of wonder, which is a, a really important word in the book, and mystery, right? And, and that there are different ways of accounting for and thinking through wonder and mystery, but they're, they're both circling around those central problems. So you mentioned before ending the book with that third section, and I was wondering if you could talk just a little bit more about that decision. You have this lovely opening, but then you have this account of consciousness that you get from William James, who also furnishes the, the book with an epigraph. And you use James to think about what the experience of and, that word and, is. So why did you have to end with and? And I'm very self-conscious of how many <laughs> and I'm saying here. Uh, and, and what is the experience of that word and that you were trying to get across? Yeah, well, structurally, it was really clear to me. I said that kind of from the moment I knew it was a book, I knew it was a book in three parts and that the three parts were lost and found and, and 
I certainly knew from the beginning that the book had to end with Anne. I, I felt like I had to furnish readers with the core experiences of grieving and loving in order to be able to walk us all together through the question of how our love and our grief are related and, and to mm. what binds them. And in general, more broadly, to the experience of being bound to many things all at once, which is a lot of what that last section is about. It's about, you know, I like that word and, it's this tiny little word, but it somehow contains within it both the idea of conjunction. It's a literal conjunction. It's meant to join things like our happiness and our, our sorrow or our love and our grief. But it's also about continuation. And this is why you were just uh, struggling to use it as its own kind of standalone word, because yeah. it, it actually always, something always comes after it, right? And that's the nature of, of existence too. Something is always coming next. Uh, and I'm interested in that feeling of continuity as well as in the feeling of conjunction. So I felt like I had to lay the groundwork for readers first, but it also did seem to me the right place to end because I think that it is, it's the deep unsettled place. It's the fact that the, the solace of grieving is that we grieve because we love someone. And the challenge of loving is that loving someone means that we have to figure out how to live with the fact that we'll lose them someday as well, or they will lose us. Those are the terms of existence. We don't get a choice about it. And so I was interested in sitting with that and and how we make our peace with these kinds of looming existential questions that seem to me quite captured in the idea. But there's a wonderful passage in James when he says, you know, we spend all this time thinking about all the obvious things we say, all the obvious words, your fabulous plaid shirt, the tea kettle behind you. You know, these are my, my windows. These are very easy to get our heads around nouns, basically, and verbs, right? You and I are talking. But he said, well, there's all these little parts of speech that we ignore, but they actually give it its meaning. And one of his examples is the word and. And he's very clear on how, how intellectually and emotionally important a word like that is. We have no sense making without words like that. And so I read that passage and I thought, he poses this question, what's the feeling of and? And that's a question I try to answer in the last part of this book. What does it feel like to live with two things that are connected just by virtue of us being alive and experiencing them both? Because that's a lot of light, right? You're, we've all experienced it incredibly acutely during the pandemic, right? On the one hand, you're incredibly worried about your elderly parents uh, and, and their health. On the other hand, you're really happy to have had all this extra time at home with your kids, or you're really happy to have had all this time home with your kids, but also you have no childcare and school's incredibly disrupted and you're exhausted and going crazy. So we, we just, we live with a lot of ant in our everyday lives. Yeah. And I was very interested in exploring that and it did feel to me, there's nothing beyond it, right? It, it had to be the end because and is the final word. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the conjunction between grieving and loving is beautifully explored throughout the book. And thank you for writing it. And thank you for talking with me today, Catherine. It's been such a pleasure, Tony. Catherine Schultz's memoir is Lost and Found, and it's available now from Random House. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. 